Welcome to You Masterclass, the film podcast written and produced by students in the film studies program at UMass Amherst. I'm Jackie Celestino. And I'm Emily Coe. First full episode, how do you feel? I'm so excited. The films we're talking about today are so important and beautifully made. Obviously, don't listen to this episode yet if you haven't watched at least one of them, because big spoiler alert ahead. This episode really dives into the bigger issues that the characters in both films face. Equally as exciting about this episode is that everything about the podcast is finally coming together. You Masterclass was created in the spring of 2020, right as the pandemic hit. In the past two months, however, we've worked hard to figure out and shape what you can call You Masterclass's mission statement. You Masterclass's purpose is to educate our listeners about film, television, and media analyzing not only the formal elements of visual media, but its influences, impact, and power in the real world. This podcast equally vows to be accessible, often referring back to basic film concepts in our episodes so that listeners of no matter what film proficiency can learn about the media they consume too. Yes, absolutely. We also have an Instagram now. You can follow us at umasterclasspod. We post a bunch of things like podcast recommendations and updates on new episodes. Soon, we're going to be posting behind-the-scenes stuff, sneak peeks to future episodes, and other content to get to know us a little better. And speaking of us, You Masterclass isn't just Jackie and me. We have an amazing production assistant who helps with research and coordinates our social media. And we have an awesome audio engineer who helps with editing our audio to make our voices hopefully sound beautiful in your ears. They make up such an essential part of the team, so special, special shout out to Sheila and Joseph. Today we're talking about One Night in Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, two incredible films that are on streaming platforms right now if you want to watch them before listening to the rest of the episode. And a quick disclaimer, some of the film clips that we use contains explicit language. We're starting with One Night in Miami, where Muhammad Ali, or better known then as Cassius Clay, had his historic victory in 1964. That night, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke get together at a motel to celebrate. Although we don't actually know what happened that night, the film explores the potential conversations the four of them might have had. The film dropped on Amazon Prime January 15th and is directed by Regina King. In her career spanning nearly four decades, King has won four Primetime Emmy Awards, a Golden Globe, and an Academy Award. She starred in the critically acclaimed movie If Beale Street Could Talk, an Emmy-winning show, Watchmen. So right now, we're recording this episode on March 13th, and the Oscar nominations are going to be announced really soon. I have high hopes for Regina King. If there's anyone that deserves that nomination, it's definitely her. No matter what she does, acting or directing, she's just incredible. One Night in Miami is actually her featured directorial debut, and an adaptation of a play by the same name. The one-act play was released in 2013 and written by Kemp Powers. It was not only praised for its ability to address complex issues of race, but also its ability to bring historical figures to life. To see people like Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X as real people who had to navigate a life in the Jim Crow era reminds us that the issues the film talks about haven't disappeared, 
but are really paralleled in society today. The play's timeline only spans one night, but the issues that are brought up are big and complex. And despite the fact that the story mostly takes place in a motel room, it is not without action. Yeah, let me set the scene. So Cassius Clay, played by Eli Gore, has just won the World Heavyweight Championship. Malcolm X, played by Kingsley Benadir, invites Cassius, Sam Cooke, played by Leslie Odom Jr., and Jim Brown, played by Aldous Hodge, to his motel room. Cassius, Sam, and Jim are expecting a light-hearted party, but they learn that they were the only ones invited, and it seems like Malcolm is looking to have a more serious conversation with them. All right. When, when is this party going down? Yeah, that's a good question. What's on the agenda, Malcolm? Well, I thought this would be a wonderful chance for us to reflect on what's happened tonight. Like our young brother said, there's no denying that greater forces were at work. You mean no one else is coming? Well, rest assured, my brother, you're not missing anything. But I, I wanted some pussy. Oh, it'll be all right, Jimmy. I think you'll live. Hey, hey, Malcolm, I, <laughs> I, I did not give up a chance to stay and party at the Fountain Bloom. The Fountain Bloom. The Fountain Bloom, Miami Beach. Well, you just walked right up to the counter and booked yourself a room, brother Malcolm, Sam. Malcolm, relax. Alan booked the room. Alan booked the room. Alan Klein. The white man. That's his job. Oh, that's his job? To tell the other crackers that you're one of the To do what I ask him to do. To quit the philosophical debate for five seconds. I ain't just heard Jim say he's getting blue balls. The four men's conversations weave in and out of friendly banter, but they ultimately land on a discussion about racial justice. Initially, they have different conceptualizations of what they should be striving for in terms of liberation. And these ideas are not necessarily conflicting, but the differences between them definitely give rise to some of the tension we see on screen, particularly between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. And you can feel the start of this tension during that clip you just heard. And this is a relationship in the film that really caught our eye. We want to talk about Sam Cooke's performance scenes because they correspond with him coming to more fully embrace his desire to speak out about issues facing the oppressed. And Malcolm helps bring out this part of Sam. We travel from the Copa to Boston and finally to his performance on The Tonight Show. So let's start at the beginning with Sam's first performance in the film. What did you think of this scene, Jackie? Uh, When I first watched it, I just kept looking away. The scene is so awkward and uncomfortable. Almost everyone in the room ignores him, and the ones that don't have these awful judgmental faces that almost scream, who do you think you are? You can see how Sam Cooke tries to keep up appearances, but ends up fumbling with his mic's cord and making his mic stand fall. Yeah, it's definitely awkward and kind of hard to watch. There's a long shot of Sam facing the white audience in front of him as if the environment around him is talking over his performance, sort of absorbing his voice. This isn't consistent with the presence that we would expect a singer would have. A singer is a performer who's supposed to seize the stage and capture everyone's attention. This is not what's happening here. He starts talking to the audience, trying to get them a little hyped up, but it doesn't work. Waiters are walking past him. You hear the clinking of plates and forks. You hear people's, excuse me, excuse me, as they shuffle around, their raspy coughs. Clearly, the audience is not paying attention, and they're certainly not receptive to his performance. There are medium close-ups of people in the audience. A good amount of screen space and time is given to these people, even though it's Sam's performance. Again, the audience is drowning out everything Sam is doing on stage. He's just not reaching them. 
You would think Sam Cooke was some unknown musician by the way that the audience is treating him, but at this point of his career, he's established and well-known. Being invited to sing at the Copa was a big honor, and yet we don't see that here. What we do see is a kind of hostility towards Sam. This is, of course, understood by the context of racial tensions at the time, where to be successful and black was still really rare for white people to see. To a degree, the racial dynamics happening in the scene are what Malcolm takes particular issue with, with Sam later on. Malcolm thinks Sam's talents are being wasted on writing meaningless pop songs that cater to an exploitive white audience. Yeah, so throughout the film, Malcolm criticizes Sam for not speaking out about the fight for black liberation. Malcolm brings up the magnitude of the struggle. He talks about how black people are fighting for their lives while Sam is singing songs like You Send Me and I Love You for Sentimental Reasons. Malcolm takes out a record and plays these songs to confront Sam with his own music. And Sam is clearly uncomfortable. There's a medium close-up that lingers on him to emphasize his discomfort as they all listen to these more lovey-dovey tunes. The bottom line, this is too important a time, brother, to be wasting a, a, a brilliant and, and creative mind on pandering. And it's too damn hot in here to be wearing that blazer. So what's your point? My, my point is, brother Sam, that I am just one voice in this struggle. Just one. And Cassius, Cassius, he's another who, who pushes us forward with his fists and with his words. And Jimmy, Jimmy pushes us forward with his fearlessness. And his relentlessness. My point is that you, brother, you could be the loudest voice of us all. After this, Sam does push back on Malcolm. There's the scene where Cassius, Sam, and Jim end up on one side of the room, and Malcolm ends up on the other side. And Sam has this great monologue about the economic success that he's actively promoting through his way of navigating the industry. He walks back and forth as he becomes more comfortable with what he thinks he has done for the community and eventually walks to the other side of the room to get close to Malcolm. There's some choreography here. Sam's movement matches the confidence he feels about how he's promoting the success of other black musicians. I have these protégés, Valentinos, five Womack brothers. The youngest one, Bobby, wrote this song, It's All Over Now. Great tune. The band records it, it's fantastic all over the R&B charts. It even went to number 94 on Billboard's Hot 100. So then I get a call from England. One of these British bands wants to record a cover version. The Beatles? Nah, Cash, they call themselves the Rolling Stones. Uh, like the Muddy Water song. Exactly. So Bobby's like, you know, no damn way, man. That's our song, man. But I get the final say, and I'm looking at the big picture. I give the Rolling Stones permission to record it. You did. I did. And the Rolling Stones version of the song goes all the way to number one. Not on the R&B charts, pop charts. But of course, you know, once this version of the song gets big, Bobby's version just disappears. It falls off the R&B charts, it's just gone. So of course, Bobby's crushed. Yes, as well he should be, Sam. Let me finish. He's crushed for about six months because Six months later, that first royalty check comes in. And because Bobby's a writer and my company owns the rights to the song, that means every time some white girl buys a copy of that single, she put money into my pockets, our pockets. White boys out there touring around, they ain't even know they working for us. 
Next thing you know, Bobby's like, the Rolling Stones want to cover any more versions of my song? <laughs> you know who gets paid more than the writer of a song that hits number 94 on the Billboard Hot 100? Mm. The writer of a song that hits number one. I already knew that. Now Bobby knows it too. Tell me how it's not empowerment. Everybody talks about they want a piece of the pie. Well, I don't. I want the goddamn recipe. In this clip, Cook is making his case to Malcolm that he is making real change within an unjust society by creating monetary opportunities. But the tension between them is that Malcolm believes the fight for liberation should be explicit and visible. It's the question of does Sam have the obligation to use his art to voice his explicit support for the struggle in order for him to be quote-unquote doing enough for the movement? Sam seems to be pushing back on this idea that he has to speak out about the fight for liberation directly through his lyrics. He believes he's still doing a lot for the community by facilitating financial success for other Black musicians. There's a really great article from the Smithsonian Magazine written by Melon Solly about this film. Solly draws on some quotes from Dewan Dylan Reese, who's the curator of music and performing arts at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, who talks a little bit about Malcolm's criticisms and this tension between him and Sam. In the article, Dwandalyn Reese says, quote, These kinds of accusations are common when you talk about African Americans in the arts, with critics questioning whether works should only be seen through the lens of social justice or through the lens of art for art's sake. Reese adds, however, that such arguments fail to recognize the value of differing approaches to civil rights. Cook, like many other people, find ways towards fighting for racial equality, not through the lens of just protesting or being a voice on the streets or on television, but by opening opportunities for other people. Reese explains, making sure African-American voices are heard, are employed, that the music reaches a broad audience, and also opening doors as a performer. End quote. Reese's quote challenges the idea of a right way to be an activist especially if the activist is the one with the grievance, not an ally. When the oppressed create art that does not explicitly speak on social justice issues, is it possible that they are still engaging in activism since they are creating within an unjust system, which in itself seems to be an act that attempts to overcome the system that discriminates against them and their art in the first place? These are questions that underlie the tension between Sam and Malcolm. They're each involved in the movement in different ways. Like the article said, Sam at this point in the film isn't necessarily a voice on the streets or on television like Malcolm is, but Sam is opening up opportunities for other Black voices. After Sam pushes back, Malcolm takes out another record and plays Bob Dylan's Blowin' in the Wind. This is kind of a big moment for Sam. Malcolm brings this up to show Sam that economic success and protest through art are not necessarily incompatible. A close-up lingers on Sam as the song plays. You can tell he's even more uncomfortable now. I just love those lyrics. Especially in the beginning. How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? This is always asking how much do the oppressed have to do before they can be recognized as human beings. That really gets you thinking, don't it? I already knew blowing in the wind, Malcolm. I heard it when it first came out. It didn't make you angry? Why would it? When this Bob Dylan fellow, white boy from Minnesota. So what? So, this is a white boy 
from Minnesota who has nothing to gain from writing a song that speaks more to the struggles of our people, more to the movement than anything that you have ever penned in your life, brother. I know, I, I, I know I'm not the true business person you are, my brother, but since you say being vocally in the struggle is bad for business, why's this whole song going higher on the pop charts than anything you got out? Why has this song gone higher on the pop charts than anything you got out? Hmm? Sam ends up leaving for a little while without saying anything, so you can see how much this affects him. In each of these instances, we see Sam confronted with imperative questions. What can be considered a meaningful way to fight against oppression? What does liberation even mean? Is it pursuing economic freedom or publicly vocalizing injustices like Malcolm? Malcolm explains to Sam that he knows he has the potential to influence people and really be a big part of moving the fight forward. This is when the Boston scene comes in. I love this scene. From the sound production to the shots, everything is set up to give you goosies. We get to see that scene from every angle, and I feel like we're right there. Yeah, as Malcolm recounts Boston, the composition is balanced. Jim and Sam are sitting on one side, and Malcolm and Cassius are sitting on the other. They're all kind of on the same page now, all invested in what happened at the Boston concert. This conversation is more intimate. There's less tension, and that friendly banter kind of comes back in again. Going back to the memory of Boston, Sam's mic stops working just as he's about to perform. The crowd is getting antsy, you hear boos in the crowd, and right at this moment, Sam starts singing Chain Gang, a cappella, with everyone in the audience. Malcolm is standing in the back at this Boston performance, and the shot moves from Sam on stage and kind of zooms out to the back of the crowd. And the sound moves with this shot. 
Sam's singing gets drowned out by the ooh, ah, and the stomping of the crowd, but it's not the kind of drowning out that he experienced at the Copa. There's a sense of togetherness. He has this ability to captivate the crowd. Even though the friendly banter comes back as they're talking about Boston, that's not to say that this is a lighter conversation. But it's Malcolm's way of expressing that he knows Sam has a strong voice, capable of moving an audience and the movement forward. This is a pretty transformative moment for Sam. It's important to acknowledge that he doesn't become an activist because of Malcolm's criticisms, but rather Malcolm seems to bring out the part of Sam that genuinely wants to speak out about these issues. So after the scene, Sam reveals he started working on something, and that something is a change is gonna come. Okay, we're at Sam's last performance scene. Sam's on The Tonight Show, he's singing, there's a really slow zoom shot, the focus is on him, which is completely different than the scene at the Copa. He wipes off a tear, and it cuts to him on the TV screen as Malcolm watches. Take a listen to this last sequence of the film. This song. This is a protest song. It's a song a lot of people think of when they hear the name Sam Cooke. Ultimately, the decision to write the song was Sam's, not Malcolm's. But here's an open question to our audience. Let's say Sam had been happy with just creating opportunities for Black artists and kept going with his business venture, as it was, without ever having written the song. Do you think it makes him any less of an activist? Racism goes beyond the use of explicit language. Today's society might not allow the use of language around race that was more openly used during the Jim Crow era, but racism has not changed or gone away. Ibram X. Kendi talks about this in his interview about one of his books, Stamped from the Beginning. Sure, and so the thesis for the book actually came about through researching for the book, which I think is, is a good thing. And, and that was, I ended up in, entering into this history of racist ideas, believing this common idea that really the sort of origins, the cradle of racist ideas is ignorance, are ignorance and hate. And that ignorance and hate leads to racist ideas. And it's these people who have these racist ideas who are the people who institute racist policies like slavery, segregation, and even mass incarceration. And so the more I sort of study this history, the more I contextualize the development of these ideas in their historical moment. And more importantly, the more I distinguish between the producers of racist ideas and the consumers and decided to study the producers, 
the more I found that people were producing racist ideas to justify existing racist policies. In other words, racist policies were becoming before racist ideas. And those racist policies were emerging out of self-interest. And so you had economic, political, and even cultural self-interest driving the creation of racially discriminatory policies. And then the need to justify those policies led to the development of racist ideas. And then those racist ideas and their circulation, or more so consumption, led to our ignorance and hate. And so I People claim that they're not racist, but they can still be perpetuating racism by supporting racist policies, not recognizing and acknowledging implicit bias, and making assumptions from stereotypes. Ignorance about race hurts marginalized communities because it perpetuates racism, and this is what Kendi is explaining in the clip. Those who are affected by these issues the most are often the ones who then have to take on the burden to craft a solution. Is it solely the black community's responsibility to fully dismantle racism, or is it also the responsibility of non-black people to take accountability about how we enforce the system and help dismantle it? These questions pertaining to art and activism are also explored in the second film that we're going to talk about, which is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. We also have an interview coming up with Professor Nicholas McBride, who talks a little bit more about the blues. So stay tuned for all of that. Now we're going back in time a little bit to the late 20s. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is directed by George C. Wolfe, who is also a playwright and director. Wolfe has won several awards for his work, including two Tony Awards and three Drama Desk Awards. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, however, is adapted from a play of the same name by renowned playwright August Wilson. This play is just one of the ten included in his most well-known project, The Pittsburgh Cycle or better known yet as the Century Cycle, which depicts African-American life, each play exploring a different decade, hence the nickname. Denzel Washington, a producer of the film, has made it his mission to help adapt Wilson's cycle to the screen. Ma Rainey becomes the second film adaptation to debut on Netflix. A little background on the blues. They were born from field haulers, work, and spiritual songs, sung in the fields of the South by slaves. From these origins came the signature wail and raw expression you can find as characteristic of the blues. By the late 20s and early 30s, blues had captivated everyone's attention. Record labels quickly noticed how easily they could make money off of black people by creating race records, professionally signing on black blues artists, creating their records, and marketing them to black people. Of course, with a considerable sum of the profits going back into white men's pockets. The blues are, are a philosophy of life and a musical form. Um, it's the same as gospel uh, musically, but um, it deals with the, the acceptance of life on life's terms and rejoicing that life can be beautiful while it can be ugly at the same time. That's Professor Nicholas McBride, 
an associate professor for the journalism department here at UMass Amherst. McBride completed his master's in journalism at Columbia University and also holds a master's degree from Harvard University. He's reported for a number of publications, including the Springfield Daily News and Washington Post. McBride is a recipient of the 2005 Distinguished Teaching Award and was a fellow at the Center for Teaching in 2005 as well. Most recently, McBride was a recipient of both the SBS College Outstanding Teacher Award and the Distinguished Academic Outreach Award for Outreach and Teaching from 2011 to 2012. Professor McBride teaches this one class in the Honors College called American Music in History, Metaphysics, and Politics that I was incredibly fortunate to take. We discussed the blues, of course, and its many derivatives such as jazz, R&B, and rock, but the most intriguing part of the class was talking about music as metaphysical. Metaphysics means the, the definition of reality. And a lot of Westerners or people who are, are not from the blues tradition, meaning African-Americans where um, it was incubated, tend to repress things rather than face them. And so this is just a, a, a way to look at things, accept them, and then to continue to celebrate in spite of whatever you're, you're dealing with. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times it's, it's misrepresented as, you know, this sad thing. Whereas the blues can be sad sometimes. I mean, you know, when you're talking about heartbreak or loss, but at the same time, it's sort of like a, like what you see in a New Orleans funeral. I mean, people go, people go, into, go into the graveyard sad, but when they come back, they're rejoicing. Um, and implicit in that is, is this understanding that that life is not um, the life is always that love is always, and it transcends uh, what you might see with your material uh, or sense perception. We see and feel the love of blues in this film, and it's because of the film's incredible actors like Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman who play the two main characters. Both fully immerse themselves in their roles as Ma and Levy, respectively, whose relationship is one of the many that are at tension. So Ma Rainey is in Chicago to record some songs at the Paramount Recording Studio. The band members Levy, Cutler, Toledo, and Slow Drag get there before her. Irvin, one of the white producers, is just frantic the whole time, trying to get on Ma's good side, while Mel, the other producer, is impatient and wants Ma to go by his rules. Most of the film takes place in the studio. Ma's upstairs in the main recording room, while the band members spend a lot of their time in the band room, which is just this dingy room in the basement with a mysterious locked door that we're going to talk about later. Irvin and Mel are unable to make Ma stick to their schedule. She's assertive, outspoken, and stubborn. She'll do what she wants when she wants, and she'll get what she wants when she wants. There's a scene where she stops recording because she doesn't have her Coca-Cola, and she refuses to continue singing and be amenable to the producer's request to keep going. Okay, Ma, we're ready to go. Where's my Coke? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, boys. Where's my Coke? I need a Coke. Hard as it is, sure. I need a Coke. What's the matter, Ma? Where's my Coke? I need a Coke, Coca-Cola. Uh, Ma, look. 
I forgot the Coke. Let's do it without it, huh? Just this one song. What say, boys? Damn what the band say. You're supposed to have my Coca-Cola. You knew that. I knew nothing without my Coca-Cola. Now, just a minute here, Ma. You come in an hour later. You need to get out of my face, Irvin. I told you to keep them away from well, me. I'm tired of the nonsense, Irvin. I'm not going to put up with this. Let me. Ma, listen. I'll call down to the deli and I'll get you a Coke, but let's get started, huh? Sylvester's standing there ready to go. The band's all set up. Let's do this one song. Why don't you cheat to buy me a Coca-Cola? I'll buy my own. Slow drag, Sylvester. Come on, baby. Get me three bottles of Coca-Cola, ice cold. Get y'all something, too. Keep the change. Yes, ma'am. Urban, get away from me. Shit. You can wait till I get my Coca-Cola. Ain't gonna kill you. Okay, Ma. Get your Coke. Gentlemen in the band room. A.O. Scott's review of this film explains why Ma acts in this assertive, stubborn way. Yeah, Scott writes, quote, Ma demands three bottles of Coca-Cola ice cold before she will sing another note and continually upbraids her nervous white manager. But this behavior isn't the result of ego or whim. It's the best way she has found of protecting the value of her gift, which once it becomes a commodity, a record, will enrich somebody else. The hard bargain she drives is the best deal she can get, end quote. Without context, I think people would be put off by what seems like this drama queen stunt Ma pulls. But with context, we can better make sense of this scene as a portrait of the constant power struggle within the music industry and also black people within white industries in general. Ma knows that her voice is only being recorded by Paramount because they can make money off of her. While these men have the power to control any other aspect of her life, like not paying her what she's worth, the most she can do in this moment is to get it from somewhere else. Demanding three Cokes is her way of protecting the value of her talent. The fact that she is bold and does not easily give in makes the way Irvin acts slightly amusing. I love how uncomfortable Irvin gets around Ma when she's being assertive. As her manager, he uses Ma because he can make money off her. It's a bonus if he gets to flaunt her for his guest too, like a wind-up doll. She becomes almost inanimate in his eyes, and her only purpose is to entertain. The moment he sees her as a person, strong-willed and with her own opinions, Irvin is frantic and running all around, desperately trying to get what he needs from Ma, which is, of course, her voice. We're going to be focusing on the tension between Ma Rainey and Levy. Ma and Levy are sort of making their way through the music business differently. Ma Rainey knows she's being exploited. She's recording these songs and she knows that a lot of the profit will go to these white men producers. But she maintains her assertive attitude and she insists on respect. White folks trying to be put out with you all the time. Too cheap to buy your damn Coca-Cola. I let them know it though. Ma don't stand for no shit. Sure. You want to take your voice and trap it in all them fancy boxes, all them buttons and dials. And then too cheap to buy your Coca-Cola. Don't cost but a nickel a bottle. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. Well, I done learned that. And they're going to treat me the way I want to be treated, no matter how much it hurt them. They're back there right now calling me all kinds of names, calling me everything but a child of God. But they can't do nothing else because they ain't got what they wanted yet. As soon as they get my boys down on one of them recording machines, 
then it's just like I be some whore and they roll over and put their pants on. They ain't got no use for me then. I know what I'm talking about, you watch. And Irvin, he right there with the rest of them. He don't care nothing about me either. He been my manager for six years and the only time he had me over his house was to sing for some of his white friends. Huh, I know how they do. Yeah, you colored and you can make them some money, then you all right with them. Otherwise, you just a dog in the alley. I'd have made them more money for my records and all them other recording artists they got put together and then they want to bark about how much this session is costing them. I can't see how it's costing as much as they say. Shit it ain't. I don't pay that kind of talk no mind. Levy, on the other hand, deals with these producers a little bit differently. So Levy has the song he's working on that'll hopefully be his big break and give him the opportunity to have his own band. He has dreams that go beyond just playing accompaniment for Ma. So when Mel comes down to the band room, Levy gives him the music that he's working on and is agreeable towards him, which is very different from how Ma acts. The other band members make fun of him for being quote-unquote spooked up by the white man. But Levy makes it clear that he's handling it in his own way. Levy can't help it, none. He, he, he's spooked up by the white man. Ain't had time to study. I studied the white man. I got him studied good. First time one fixes on me wrong, I'm gonna show him just how much I study. Come tell me I'm spooked up by the white man. You let one mess with me. I'll show you how spooked up I am. The man come in here, call you a boy, tell you to get up off your ass and rehearse it. You ain't had nothing to say except, yes, sir. <laughs> I can say yes, sir, to whoever I please. What you got to do with it? I know how to handle white folks. I've been handling them for 32 years. Now you gonna tell me how to do it? Just cause I say yes, sir, don't mean I'm spooked up by him. I know what I'm doing. Let me handle it my way. Well, go on and handle it then. Tell me, you know, you always messing with somebody. Always agitate somebody with that old philosophy bullshit you be talking. You stay out of my way about what I do and say. I'm my own person. Just let me alone. All right, all right, let me. This is kind of similar to Sam in One Night in Miami, where he's trying to deal with exploitation and spin it so that the benefit will ultimately come back to him. Think of that Rolling Stones example that we talked about. This is an attempt of working within an unjust system. The monologue that follows describes a traumatic event in Levy's past where Levy's father is punished for wanting to be independent. Levy says that his dad was seen as uppity by white people for buying land to work and sell from, which infuriated them. On a day when his dad is out, Levy and his mom are attacked in their own home by a group of eight white men. Levy tries to protect his mom with a knife, but gets slashed with it instead. The cut nearly kills him, scaring the group of men from continuing their assault. After this, Levy remembers how his dad dealt with the white men that came to his house that day. He smiled in their faces as he sold them his land, and after they moved and his family was safe, Levy's dad sought his revenge. He sneaked back, hiding up in the woods, planning to get them eight or nine men. He got four of them before they got him. <laughs> they tracked him down in the woods. Caught up with him, hung him. 
Set him afire. My daddy wasn't spooked up by the white man, no sir. And that taught me how to handle them. I seen my daddy go up and grin in this cracker's face. <laughs> Smile in his face and sell him his land all the while. He's planning how he's going to get him and what he's going to do to him. That taught me how to handle them. So you all just back up and leave Levy alone about the white man. I can smile and say yes, sir, to whoever I please. I got my time coming to me. You all just leave Levy alone about the white man. There's the scene where Ma ends up firing Levy after he improvises during the recording session and talks back at her after she confronts him about it. After this heated argument, he goes back down to the band room and finally opens the door that he's noticed since the start of the movie. You see, this locked door is one of the first things Levy noticed when he first walked into this room. You hear these drums in the background getting more intense as Levy tries opening the door. He finally gets it open and it's a dead end. He's essentially in this inescapable hole and the camera tilts up to show how deep this hole is. The percussion we hear acts as a mini leitmotif that corresponds with Levy's frustration and realization that he cannot escape the system of oppression. The next time we hear it is when Mel ends up rejecting Levy's music. He claims that Levy's music is just not what he's looking for, and he doesn't think it'll do well as Ma's records. You told me I could record them songs. Well, there's nothing I can do about that. Like I say, it's $5 a piece. That's what I'll pay you. I'm doing you a favor. Now, if you write any more, I'll help you out and take them off your hands. The price is $5 a piece, just like now. There's a close-up on Levy's angry face as the rhythm of the drums become faster, more intense. Here's a clip of Wolf talking about the scene. August put in there him trying to get through that door, and I went, let's have him at one point break through that door and realize that door leads to nowhere. That, if nothing else, you know, that is racism in America. You are promised something. You are promised that if you do the correct things and if you work really hard and if you do everything you're supposed to do, you will break through that door and everything will be possible. And very frequently when you break through that door, there's a wall on the other side. You want an audience to surrender. 
to Levy's story when he tells it. And the way you get them to surrender, in my understanding, in addition to having a brilliant artist do it, which Chadwick is, is also by, by making sure that there's a rhythmic tautness leading up to it. The difference between Sam Cooke and Ma Rainey's approach to working within the unjust system from levies is what they expect to gain from making compromises to get what they want. Levy has dreams of having his own band. He's young and hopeful that'll make a name for himself. But when Mel doubles back on Levy, he realizes the magnitude of the obstacles that lie before him. Levy's story ends with him breaking down and stabbing Toledo out of anguish. The last scene is heartbreaking as we watch a white band recording Levy's song that Mel took from him. Here's Viola Davis talking a little bit about this. The tragedy of Levy is that you want it to be different, but you know that the end to Levy is inevitable. There is nothing in his life that grounds him other than his music. And then when that is taken away, there is nothing. Despite Ma's success and established career in comparison to Levy's, both are victims of exploitation, where white arbiters filter black art through their own vision of commercial success. One Night in Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom are set in two different periods of America's history. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom takes place in the 20s, where the structures of racism are even more inescapable. Ma, Levy, the band, all they can do is find a way to survive in a system of oppression and exploitation. Racial injustice still continues to pervade in the 60s, but in One Night in Miami, Malcolm and Sam are facing the question of how do you effectively fight? this system of oppression and exploitation. Here's Professor McBride talking a little bit more about Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke was, was, even though he was trapped by American apartheid, he insisted on forming his own record company and and boosting up uh, artists uh, who would not have gotten ahead without, without him having his own record company. But of course, Jackie, you know, the, the end of that story was that there was a, the accountant and lawyer that he trusted ended up, uh, you know, doing him in. And uh, that documentary on, on Netflix about the two, I think it called it Two Murders of Sam Cooke, um, basically talk about the, you know, the stranglehold that they put on his, his progressive business uh, ventures by stealing, essentially stealing from him. And then, of course, his, his uh, untimely death under, under uh, questionable circumstances. But that, that riff leads me to remember that, you know, a change is going to come, which, which was um, a, a, a plea for the politics we're talking about was held back was not uh, released at the time because they thought it was it was too uh, volatile. So he was way ahead in a, in, a, in a lot of a lot of ways. McBride here describes the obstacles Sam Cooke was faced with within the Jim Crow era. 
despite breaking through some of the financial barriers that deprived marginalized communities of opportunities equal to that of white people. In the end, Sam Cooke still could never fully overcome the system of oppression. The civil rights movement in the 60s pushed for revolution, demanding to be seen and treated as equals to white people. Today, we might not say that we're perfect when it comes to matters of racism, but I believe that most of our society would agree that the livelihood of black people has improved. What passed as okay in the Jim Crow era doesn't anymore, so that should mean improvement, right? Ibram X. Kendi explains in this clip that it's actually not that simple. Racist policies embedded in our society did harm back in the 60s and continue to do harm now. So I think that that's actually a question I was sort of wrestling with in, in writing Stamp from the Beginning, because I think our generation, for instance, um, has dealt with mass incarceration, uh, has dealt with a series of different sort of issues that my, our parents' generation did not deal with. At the same time, our parents' generation was saying to us, well, you, had it, you got it better than we do. And we were like, well, <laughs> and so it's been this constant generational conflict to a certain extent within the black community in which younger people are saying it's worse or it's still bad or it's worse than ever and, and older people are saying, oh, no, it's, it, 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 there's no way it's, it's, it's worse than it was when I was coming up in, in Jim Crow. And, and, and in writing this history of racist ideas, I had to write a history of, of black America. And so I actually found that both positions were correct, that it is, in fact, the case that we've had racial progress. But it's simultaneously the case that we've had racist progress. And, and to your question, how that happens is when anti-racist um, activists and, and, and Americans have essentially been able to break down barriers, um, barriers of policies that benefited people um, and, of course, excluded other people, those who benefited from those barriers did not just like fly home to their, um, to their states or to their golf courses in Palm Beach, not to pick on a particular party either. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they, they stayed and figured out new and ever more sophisticated ways to exclude people, to suppress people, to oppress people. While our society hasn't always made significant strides towards racial equity, McBride says that with every revolution, he sees our society slowly start to address more and more aspects of racial injustice. It's, it's like we had these periods where you, you have construction, the troops protect uh, reconstruction, the troops protect uh, uh, black life and political aspiration and education uh, for a time. And then it gets all taken down and taken apart because it's not in the advantage of those in control. And so, you know, it goes away. And then, then you have the 1960s and the early 70s where I come to, of age and you have another reconstruction and the reconstruction says that UMass has to figure out a different kind of evaluative criteria to judge me. Uh, you can't rest on the SATs and it certainly couldn't rest on my grades. <laughs> but they say, oh, this kid is, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a phenom in his journalism program at, at the High School of Commerce in Springfield. Maybe, maybe we should give him a shot and then give some supportive uh, infrastructure for him to develop. And a lot of people got put on 
from my generation because of this uh, second reconstruction. Now we have an, a third evolution. All of a sudden, your generation of young people say, wait a minute, they're killing Black people like it's, like it's lynching redo. And you all are saying, wait a minute, that could be me, <laughs> you know, and, and, and identifying directly with everyone in a so-called oppressed classes or, you know, subjugated and subjected to um, violence. And that violence can be many forms, not just physical violence, but, but um, the marginalization of your worldview, the marginalization of your experience. And, and so I'm heartened. Now we have another reconstruction. And, it, and, it, and it's all you young people saying, hey, we are, we're not with this racism stuff. We're not, with, we're not with this homophobic stuff. We're not with this, you know, women second and they don't need to be paid like men. We, we're not with that. And all these kids look all together different from one another. And I'm telling you, I, I, I was almost ready to cash my chips in uh, until this happened. I was like, I was getting tired. It's getting tired. I'm, I'm talking about making common cause for 30 years. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, like the ripple on the pond, those three or 4,000, maybe 5,000 students that I was able to, to impact their lives uh, during my run, that was something that, you know, you, you can't like discount it, but I was getting a little discouraged. And then this whole thing jumps off and COVID brings it all into bold relief. It's like all this ugliness, all this disease underneath is brought to the surface because all of a sudden we got to slow down, stop buying stuff and, and take a look to the inner reaches of our souls and hearts and then figure out, okay, where do we go from here? And we're still facing this question of how do we fight the system of oppression and exploitation, but there's also this question of how do we recognize it with the knowledge that it does pervade every part of our reality and not necessarily in explicit ways. How do we address it through education? How do we address it through art, through politics, through every part of our reality? Ma Rainey, Levy, Sam Cooke, they all found solace and comfort in their music. Professor McBride tells us how his life has been shaped by music as well. It's Saturday night at, at our, you know, apartment in, in, our, in, our, in our ghetto in Springfield, <laughs> you know, Massachusetts. And, uh, uh, you know, Saturday night was church in my house. <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and the church had, had alcohol and, and dancing and, and uh uh, sort of a celebration for a week of hard labor. You know, my father was a construction worker, and uh, you know, I couldn't even I couldn't even watch him work without getting tired. <laughs> you know I mean? Saturday night, it's like it's like it's not just church and celebration of life. It's it's me getting an education away from the rhythm and blues derivatives that I was listening to. Uh, which was, our, you know, we're talking about the roots music and, and that's what's playing in the background for me as a child with, with my adult relatives. And I was getting educated and I didn't even realize it. 
really what was happening. But I do remember certain songs and certain players uh, just caught me even as a child. I mean, Joe Williams, I, I, you know, he had a song called Every Day I Have the Blues. You know, um, you know, the eagle flies on Friday and Saturday I go out to play. So I mean, he got paid Friday and he's, he's having a good time on Saturday. You know, and then he sort of goes through the days and talks about lousy it is till Friday again. <laughs> Blues in all of its derivatives, or rather music in general, has long been an integral part of the African-American community. Not only because it serves as a creative outlet, but a way to voice the injustices of the community. Well, the music doesn't lie. I mean, when our political voice was, was silenced after... Uh, Post-Reconstruction, African-Americans and anybody with a black or brown skin uh, was silenced. They had no political voice. So it had, that expression had to come somewhere, come out somewhere. And um, it came out in the music. I mean, I mean, even the I mean, gospel, which is, the, like I said, the same musically as, as the blues, um, you know, when, when, when the slaves were talking about, you know, steal away, steal away to Jesus, they're, they're talking about escape. I heard one scholar call, <laughs> call gospel a cosmic blues. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, when you talk about, when, what was Gandhi talking about when he said soul force? He was talking about that, that almost, that, that thing that doesn't, is not easily defined, you know, you, you know that lifting up, that that hopefulness, that joyousness. And, you know, the church has always been, you know, the political incubator for, for uh, progressive politics. And the music has been a part of that. I mean, I mean, when you talk about the civil rights movement, you can't really separate that from, from uh, Sweet, Sweet Honey in the Rock. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with them, but I, you should be, <laughs> and uh, and I mean Mahalia Jackson. She, she was she was the uh, the highlight of the March on Washington that never got highlighted. We could speculate on why <laughs> why, but but um, and 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 the suggester to to King that he should switch gears and and preach about his dream. She was she was the. The, the spark that, that led into that famous um, message. And the church has been, been uh, the agitator for, for how about now? Freedom now, justice now, love now. You could, you could argue that the protest has always been there from the beginning. I mean, the, the two examples that, that I think of are Louis Armstrong's song Black and Blue, which was originally a, a Fats Waller uh, tune, um, but it's a satire commentary on racism. You know, what did I do to be so black and blue? The lyrics are, are, are kind of funny in a way, but but uh, he Satchmo or Louis Armstrong delivers them. And, and we're talking about the Prometheus of, of jazz, another tributary to, to, to blues music. And so he's the, he's the guy who brought the fire and he delivers this song, which like I say, is technically 
maybe the first popular protest song only it was you know you, you got him performing there's some footage of him performing it in uh in ghana this is right after the violent uprising of of the colonized people and the prime minister and is in the audience and you see him with this sort of wry smile on his face as Satchmo delivers these lyrics of black and blue. And Louis Armstrong, you know, you get him as a smiling figure, uh, which is diminished by the general perception as clowning or Uncle Timing. But he was very purposefully uh, delivering this song in that way, in this setting, uh, in post-colonial Ghana. Um, the other song that comes to my mind is Strange Fruit. This is Billie Holiday at Cafe Society in, in New York City, one of the few venues where Black and white people socialize together. And uh, this high school teacher presents uh, her with this, this song, and it's an expose of lynching. Lynching of of black people was like a sport in the in the south for many many decades it, it, it was arguably the second uh protest song when i say second i mean second in the sense that just like the armstrong song it was uh consumed by a general audience and the, columbia didn't want to want to uh record it so a, a small a guy named Milt Gabler from Commodore Records, who basically just loved black music and loved Billy Holiday particularly. Commodore Records made made the recording, and hey, now it's uh, an American classic. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Masterclass. To learn how you can be an ally and fight anti-blackness, we recommend these following resources for books. Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race by Debbie Irving. So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijama Oluo. The Hidden Rules of Race, Barriers to an Exclusive Economy by Andrea Flynn, Susan R. Holmberg, Dorian T. Warren, and Felicia J. Wong. Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. And How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. For podcasts, we recommend Code Switch by NPR, 1619th by the New York Times, more specifically the third episode called The Birth of American Music, the podcast Uncivil, and the podcast Seeing White, as well as Intersectionality Matters, hosted by Kimberly Crenshaw. This is not at all an exhaustive list. We highly recommend doing your own research as well and actively listening to Black voices. Special thanks to Professor Nicholas McBride, Sheila, and Joseph. The U Masterclass podcast is written and produced by students in the Film Studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Created by Christian Buckley in 2020, our intro and outro music is composed and performed by Corey Shia. Podcast art designed by Sam Huntley. For You Masterclass, I'm Emily Coe. And I'm Jackie Celestino. Thank you for tuning in.